Good afternoon and welcome to Cranley School for our Young Voter EU referendum debate. It is wonderful to see so many of you here. I would particularly like to welcome students and staff from St Catharines, Godalmin College, Cleveland's, Cranley Prep School and Christ Hospital. On Thursday the 23rd of June, a large number of you will, for the very first time, make your way down to the polling station. You will there be presented with a ballot paper. And on that will be the following question. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? Your task will then be to choose one of these options. And the choice that you make is very important. It will have major consequences for Britain's position in the world over the next decade. On 23rd of June 2016, when you walk into that polling station and put your vote in that ballot box, you will be making history. Now, we've been inundated with information from the two sides of the debate in the last week from Vote Leave and from Britain Stronger in Europe. Questions over trade, over our sovereignty and our position on the world stage. They've all come into question. It's been extremely confusing, even for a self-confessed political nerd like myself. However, today you have the opportunity to cut through this confusion. Here are the key points debated by leading figures from both camps, and hopefully by the end you'll be in a far better position to make the decision that is best for you. Now, today I want you to be selfish. I want you to think about you and your future. Do not be afraid, please, to put up your hands to ask a question. Don't be afraid to ask for clarification from either speaker on a point you don't understand. They are there to help you, to inform you. Remember, this is about your future. After the opening comments from our speakers, the floor will be open. Two of us, myself and one of my colleagues, will be roaming forward with microphones, waiting for you to take your questions. If you're hesitant about asking and want to run a press question past me, let me know, whisper it to me, I can ask it on your behalf. But please don't hesitate to come forward and grasp this opportunity by the scruff of the neck. One final point, please, everyone, before I introduce the speakers. During this debate, if I could ask you all, please, to leave your phones in your handbags or in your pockets, uh, and really focus on what's being asked today. Focus on what the debaters are saying, focus on your own questions. After the debate, I'll instruct you where to go. We're gonna have a Twitter poll running and a hashtag for comments afterwards. Uh, and it should be a great way to continue debate after we've done. So, it is now my great pleasure to introduce our speakers for the debate today. Our chair for the debate is the Right Honourable Anne Milton, Deputy Chief Whip and MP for Guildford. Representing Britain Stronger in Europe, Mr. Paul Lomas, partner at Freshfields LLP and representing Vote Leave, the Right Honourable Chris Grayling MP and Leader of the House of Commons. Uh, good afternoon to Cranley School and all the other schools here. I would just like to start by saying a huge thank you to Cranley, who, uh, when I've approached them, welcome the opportunity to host this debate, uh, Mr. Burden in particular. Um, my job here is to chair the debate, and the challenge for the gentleman on my right and the gentleman on the left is to persuade me which way I'm going to vote on the 23rd of June. I'm one of only a handful of MPs who remains undecided. I think uh, Mr. Verdon said, do please feel free to ask absolutely anything. And if you're uncomfortable in asking it because you think it's a stupid question, don't be. Because I guarantee when you've asked it, most of the room also won't know the answer. 
So uh, just to expand a little bit, Paul Lomas is a partner in Freshfields, one of the world's leading law firms. He was part of the team setting up the firm's Brussels office, creating the EU law litigation team. He's been deeply involved in all aspects of EU law. He's published on a variety of topics around EU law, corruption, corporate investigations, human rights issues, and English law, and has appeared as an advocate in the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and both the EU General Court and the Court of Justice. The Right Honourable Chris Grayling studied history at Sussex College, Cambridge. He was on the BBC News Training Scheme and worked as a producer on the BBC News. He's worked in the business side of the media industry. He was a councillor, local councillor on um, Merton Borough Council, and he's had a multitude of roles in Parliament, is now Leader of the House. So I'm going to give um, both Chris and Paul about between five and eight minutes just to make your opening arguments and then it's over to you. I've got a list here of questions that have been sent in. If I have to resort to using this list, it's because you're not asking enough questions. So we'll keep a, a good pace. I've got a stopwatch in my pocket. Um, Paul, I'll lead off with you first. Thank you. Uh, your office offered 10, so I'll try and go quickly. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, I think this is an important topic, and I'm delighted to see so many people here. I could stand in front of you and make a principled, high-rhetoric case for Europe as a concept. I could talk about the fact that Europe was ripped apart by wars for at least 200 years, with millions of dead, economies destroyed. And I could talk about uh, uh, Schumann and Monet and the visions that uh, they developed after the Second World War to create a new architecture in Europe and how that was a force for peace and part of a global geometry which is of value and I could talk about their thoughts on our common culture and our common heritage as Europeans but I'm not going to do that. Um, I want to appeal to a hard-headed rational perhaps cynical, calculating, strategic approach to a fundamentally important question. And that essentially is about the impact on the UK of leaving Europe. The IMF, the OECD, Her Majesty's Treasury, the Bank of England, PricewaterhouseCoopers Economics Unit with the CBI, Oxford Economics, the London School of Economics, the CBI, the City of London, the Confederation of Small Businesses, the Treasury, Her Majesty's Government, Her Majesty's Opposition, the Liberal Democratic Party, the Scottish Nationalists, seven US Treasury Secretaries, the President of the US, the President of China, the President of India, to name just few, have all come out and explained why the UK leaving the European Union would be fundamentally bad for it in economic terms on a protracted basis. Now, the interesting thing is that all of these groups, all of whom are effectively independent, are using different models. Some of them are using highly sophisticated econometric modeling. Some of them are basing them on their own judgment. They all come to slightly different answers. And you would, because you're using different models and you're using different assumptions. But the direction of them is entirely consistent and it is all negative for the UK. The debate is about how much it costs, not whether it costs. Whether that's 500 pounds per household per year, or six to 7,000 pounds per household 
per year. We're talking really serious numbers. We're talking about the impact on our country's ability to produce and to trade as an incredibly successful trading nation. And that comes back to what we do with that money, taxes, schools, infrastructure, hospitals, all those things. So it's a question of how we position ourselves for economic success. There's only one group of economists so far that I'm aware of that have argued against being in the EU, and therefore for Brexit. This is a group called the Economists for Brexit, which might tell you a little bit about where they're coming from, and they're led by the economics advisor to Boris Johnson. So you can form your own view on the heroic assumptions that they made for their case. Now, I don't just want to cite those authorities. I want to uh, turn to two other aspects. That case that the UK is better off in Europe is built on our own experience too. The UK has prospered in Europe. If you look at the growth of the city in London to be the world's financial centre, no question. When I started out working uh, in, in the law, uh, London was vying with New York, with Tokyo, with Hong Kong, with Singapore, with Frankfurt, with Paris. Across that time, London has become the dominant trading centre. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. One of it was, was Margaret Thatcher's reforms in the financial sector, but it's done that within the EU and with the help of the EU single passporting regime. I could take the car industry. Uh, when we entered the EU, for those people who remember the Austin Allegro, uh, Michael Edwards and British Leyland, the UK car industry was flat on its back and a joke. We now have a very successful car industry, partially because of access to European markets. So although the EU is imperfect and muddled and our relationship with it is complex, it's one that has enabled us to prosper. And we see the converse side now, with worries about leaving, we see sterling falling on the foreign exchanges down by 10%. Even the Bank of England contributes half of that fall to Brexit concerns. Uh, we see the price of buying insurance in the markets against Brexit uh, going up. My own firm is one of the largest M&A firms in the world. We do a lot of this inward investment. The market's dead. People are not investing in the UK at the moment. Now, five years ago, we were in Europe, clearly, and the investment was flowing. Now people are saying, I do not know what I'm investing into, where it'll be in two, three years' time, and these are long-term investments. I'm not making them because I'm worried about Brexit. And it's not just the experience, it's also the theory. Why is this so? It's so because the EU is 24% of world GDP. It's the world's biggest market. And we participate in that market as a member. We have complete access to it. It's our market. And it doesn't just stop there, it gets better than that. Trade deals are about the amount of economy, the amount of buying power that you can exchange with your trading counterparty. The EU has over 50 trading deals with major economies around the world, Japan, Korea, the US, Canada, etc., India. And we participate in those trading deals on terms that we could never get as a standalone nation. So you have the analysis, you have the experience, and you also have the reasons, the theory. It's said by the Brexit camp that those wanting to remain are running England down, running Britain down, that they are nervous about Britain. I don't agree. I think the point is that we can be confident about the UK and its economy and its strengths, but recognize its limitations. And the smart thing to do, if you're strategic, is to work out how you leverage your strengths 
and minimize the exposure on your weaknesses. And we do that within the EU fantastically. Now, I just want to wrap up by posing the question of what is the Brexit team's answer to that? And I would formally like uh, Chris Grayling to try and address that because I find it extremely difficult to understand what their plan is. I don't think there is a single plan. And I'd like him to do it in terms that is consistent with what Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, uh, Nigel Farage have been saying, because I don't think they're consistent. And I'd just like to pick up, in, in, in finishing this opening comment, um, on Michael Gove's proposition, which I'm afraid was jaw-dropping from my viewpoint. On the 19th of April, he referred to uh, the following proposition, and I'm paraphrasing. It's going to be fine. There is an economic free trade zone running from Iceland to the Balkans, and we're going to be part of that. We're going to be there with Serbia and Albania. Now, at this point, the penny was starting to drop. Um, I don't know where Michael Gove is getting his advice from. There is no European free trade zone from Iceland to the Balkans. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. And if you wanted to create one, should you, should it ever be possible, it would take years and you'd end up with something completely unpredictable at the moment. What we do have is the economic, uh, uh, European economic area, which includes Iceland, Norway, and that trading powerhouse Liechtenstein. We also have the specific Swiss arrangements. Now, I'm being a little bit unfair on Michael Gove here, because there is a thing called SEFTA. Can I ask if anybody in the room has heard of SEFTA? The Central Europe Free Trade Association? Well, it does include some of those countries that he mentioned. But it's not very good, because all the countries that originally formed it left it to join the EU. And what exists now is a little shell involving some of those Balkan countries whose main purpose is to prepare them to be capable of joining the EU. I don't think Michael Gove really intends our independent future to be linked to Bosnia, Serbia, and Albania as part of a group trying to align themselves with the EU. I don't know if any of you have dealt with uh, 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 Albania or, or um, the Ukraine, which is another country I've mentioned. I, for my sins, have. Uh, those are countries with significant problems. They're doing their best to address them. They are not role models for the future economy of this country. Uh, to take them as an example of the path of the future is close to insane. Now, with that, I'll stop because I think I've used my time yeah, yeah. and pass the baton over. Lovely. Paul, thank you very much. Powerful words. And Paul took nine minutes. So I think we'll give you nine minutes. You're not to answer directly the challenge he gave you. Okay. You might, because your job is to answer the questions that these young people have. But you might want to pick up on it at some point during the questions. I, I won't anyway. But let me start by reminding everybody. We are the fifth biggest economy in the world. We are one of the five permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations. Uh, we are one of the strongest military nations in the world. Uh, we are the head country, the lead country in the Commonwealth, uh, leading a group of nations that amount to a quarter of the world's population. Uh, and when it comes to the challenges ahead, I think there are really four things I want to touch on today, four areas. Uh, I want to touch on the economy issue that we've just been hearing about. I want to touch on the issue of migration and immigration. I want to touch on the cost of the European Union, and I also want to touch on the future of our democracy, our ability in future to govern ourselves as a nation. Let me start with the, the trade issue, and we're going to talk a lot about that this afternoon. But I want to 
get you to think of two or three things to start off with. The first is that Europe is being left behind in the world. Europe's importance globally economically is diminishing all the time. It's actually becoming less and less important to us. It's still pretty important to us in terms of the overall trade balance, but actually our share of world trade is growing outside the European Union. We have a massive trade surplus outside, or substantial trade surplus around the rest of the world. In Europe, we have a huge deficit. And what that means, and the importance of that, is that they buy more from us than we buy from them. And it'll be very important to remember that when we come back to talk about trade arrangements uh, this afternoon. But of course, actually, um, our biggest trade partner internationally is the United States. And we have no kind of trade agreement with the United States. We have no trade agreement with China, but you'll find your homes full of things saying made in China. So trade happens regardless of whether there are trade agreements anyway. But having a free trade deal is a good thing. And the reason we will have a free trade deal when we leave the European Union is because they buy more from us than we buy from them. And does anybody seriously think that the German government is going to say to car makers in Bavaria, we are going to put you out of work so that we can punish the British for leaving the European Union? Does anybody seriously think the French are going to say to their farmers, we're going to risk putting you out of business because you are not going to be able to trade in the same way with the United Kingdom? Of course that's never going to happen. You've seen pictures of what the French farmers do when they're unhappy. They blockade the motorways, they blockade the ports. They will carry on trading with us and we will carry on trading with them exactly as we do now because they need, there are millions of European jobs that depend upon our consumers in this country. And when we hear stories about the, uh, uh, the problems that lie ahead if we leave, just remember these things as well. The first is, in the midst of all of the things you've just heard, the German stock exchange has just chosen this moment to spend more than 2 billion euros on merging with the London stock exchange. So if they think us leaving is so bad, is this such a good moment for them to be committing that kind of money to merging and building business interests in London? And actually, the US cosmetics firm Avon's just done the same, moved its global headquarters to the UK. So it is simply not true to believe that international organisations believe that disaster will strike if we leave. And it's worth saying the Bank of England, the Bank of England governor, said that the risk to the United Kingdom economy was greater from what is happening in China than from Britain leaving the European Union. And if the Union, European Union is such a good thing economically, why are nearly half of your counterparts across southern Europe unemployed at the moment? The European Union is not proving to be a great economic success story, and I'll come back to that later. But remember this as well. League country in the Commonwealth... We cannot even, under European law, forge our own trade agreements with our own Commonwealth partners. By contrast, and Paul mentioned actually Paul got one thing wrong there, the European Union doesn't have a trade deal with Japan, but Switzerland does. Switzerland has trade deals with markets three times as big around the world as the European Union has managed. A small Switzerland, independent country doing its own thing. So do not think that we need to be part of a big block to forge trade deals around the world. Second point, migration and immigration. It's not about race, colour, creed, background. It's about practicality. We have got a population the size of Newcastle-upon-Tyne arriving in this country every year. And the forecasts are that our national population is going to rise from 63 million today to 76 to 80 million over the next generation. That is going to affect all of you, the communities you live in, 
your journeys to work, the schools for your kids when you have kids when you're older, the availability of places. Are you going to be able to get on the housing ladder? You're going to notice the difference. We live in a fabulous part of the country, but it's going to change. We're going to have to build and build and build just to keep up, let alone to get the extra housing stock we need to make sure there's enough for your generation. We cannot even set a limit on the number of people from other parts of the European Union who come and live and work here. And I think we should be able to. This doesn't mean blocking people, it doesn't mean no travel across borders, it doesn't mean absurd stories like there's going to be no interrail cards anymore. Of course there are, actually they include Russia, that's not in the European Union. But it's a question about practicality. Should we be able to set some limits? Should we, for example, be able to say, if you're going to come and live and work in the UK, you should have a job first? That is illegal under European law. That, I think, is a key reason why we should leave. Third point, the cost. We spend about £350 million a week overall in the European Union, and we see only about half of that back. £10 billion a year we could be spending in this country. That is a vast amount of money that could be used for our public services. But my final point, I think, is almost the most important of all. When you vote on June the 23rd, you're not <coughs> voting for the European Union as it is today. You're voting for the European Union as it is going to have to become over the next 10 years. And when you hear about a reformed European Union, actually it's true, there's going to be a reformed European Union, but not in the way you hear. The European Union has been through a period of unbelievable trauma in the Eurozone, with the Eurozone crisis, that has nearly brought parts of the economy of Southern Europe to their knees over the last few years. And that problem is not going to go away, it's not going to be solved as long as the huge differences in the Eurozone exist. The Greeks used to retire at 54 and not pay their taxes, and in the end the Germans have ended up paying the bill. How many more times do you think anybody's going to be willing to do that? So they are now talking very clearly about creating a European federation in the Eurozone. Uh, effectively a United States of Europe. And the people talking about that are not obscure. We're talking Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, her deputy Wolfgang Schäuble, the Italian finance minister, the five presidents of the big EU institutions, the four speakers of four of the most important European parliaments. There is a plan. There is legislation waiting to come out of Brussels this autumn that will start that process. And I want you to imagine where that takes us to. Britain's not part of the euro. We're not going to be part of that, but we're going to be on the edges of it, and the legal changes they put in place are going to affect us time and time and time again. Decisions taken as they forge that federation, which will affect us because we are still part of most of the laws that they make. And in 10 years' time, the European Union is going to be a big block, the federation of the eurozone, and two bits stuck on the end, us and Denmark. How do you think we're going to be able to look after your interests, the companies you work for when you're older, the systems of government in this country, the way we all live and work. How will we look after your interests in a situation where we have a little bit of a share at the table, but there's a great big new creature that dominates the, the scene? You may think, and people will tell you, it's not going to happen, but it has to happen because it's the only way that the Eurozone can survive the traumas it's still going through. And if they don't go down that road, if they don't change, the consequences are unthinkable. So four reasons. We take back control of our trade, and we do it in a way that means our businesses carry on operating as normal. We take back the ability to control our system of migration, and to put some limits on our 
countries enormous pressures on our public services, on housing and the rest. We save billions of pounds a year and we enable ourselves to carry on governing ourselves and taking decisions in our own national interest for the future. Quick story to end. Very quick. I went to Brussels to debate the issue of Brexit. And of course, there is a view in Brussels of what they want to try and create. And I sat next to a Belgian MEP who said, well, today, today we've been debating how we distribute fruit to children in schools. And I said, don't you understand that that is a reason why people in Britain are so sceptical about the European Union? That's not something that should be decided at a European level. It should be done locally in the United Kingdom. And one of the officials there stood up and said, but don't you understand? You have a problem with childhood obesity in the UK. Your government hasn't done enough about it. So we need to do it for you. I don't want a European government that does everything for us. I want to be part of a country that governs itself, a strong, proud, independent country of the kind we see in many, many places around the world. We don't have to give our government over to a European bloc to be successful in the world. We shouldn't and we should leave. Lovely. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, excellent. You only had a minute longer, so I think we won't claim unfairness. Um, just to say, before we start, just a show of hands. I want a show of hands. If you were asked to vote tomorrow, who is undecided? Now, put your hands up nice and big so I can count. Yep, lovely. Who would vote to remain? Who would vote to leave? Ah, so all hangs in the undecided. <laughs> lovely, thank you very much. So, a couple of things to pick up on you might want to pick up on. Is the EU an anchor to, um, on innovation and enterprise? Is it a driver of social and environmental policy? Is free movement, does free movement of European citizens discriminate against the non-EU workforce? And is leaving or remaining a price worth paying for what you as an individual want? So I need some questions, please. Questions and you can make a short statement, but it'll have to be quite short. Lovely, gentlemen on the front. Wave at me if you want to ask a question in the meantime. So Mr. Verdon won't uh, introduce so much. Luke Sterry uh, for Mr. Chris Grayling. Um, do you think that it's right that this issue is actually going to a referendum, given, given that it's quite complex and many people in the country might not actually come to the, to the right decision for the country because they maybe don't have the education to, to come to the right decision? Um, Ooh, I, I, I think it's the one. only way of addressing this issue. I mean, it is, it is building up, it has been building up for a long time. Uh, the European Union has been changing. I think the thing we almost certainly both agree on is over the last 20 or 30 years that the European Union has changed massively. It's moved from being initially a common market to a single market to something that's taken on a whole range of additional capabilities. Um, and I think we have really reached a point now where the country needs to decide. Uh, one way or the other, and there are different opinions, you've heard them on the stage tonight, but I do think we need to decide one way or the other. We can't carry on in a situation where uh, we are as divided as we are about what our future is. And the only way, credibly, to, 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 to do that is to ask you guys to decide for us and for us to explain uh, as widely and as extensively as we can what the issues are. I think, uh, yeah, Paul, do you want to say, so I think the point is, do we trust the British public to make the right decision? If I'd lost a general election, I might feel the answer to that question was no, actually. <laughs> but, Paul, your thoughts? Um, as a, as a, uh, as a, as a okay, you, you need to warm up a bit, you need to get there a bit faster. 
As a fully paid up Democrat, it's always difficult to argue against putting something to the electorate. But our form of democracy does not involve referenda on every issue. And we have a democracy system that hopefully selects, two examples to my right, uh, able people to whom we delegate powers to make decisions based on research and complex analysis of really complicated issues. And I am seriously troubled that a decision this important for your futures should be put to a referenda that will risk being decided in part by sound bites, and, and I'll have to say this because it was present in some of the things that Chris was saying, misrepresentations or massive simplifications of the truth. And we'll probably never know uh, what the right or wrong answer was, but the idea that we should just sort of roll the dice and see what happens on something as important as this troubles me. And it troubles me for a particular reason. Uh, this is a one-way decision, okay? If we decide to stay in Europe and the, the nightmare world that Chris was portraying does actually occur, it won't, but it does actually occur in 2025, it's absolutely horrendous. We've had Euro meltdown, uh, Greece is in civil war, the institutions are corrupt. That's all happened, then we can leave. I don't know what we'll be leaving, well, there may be nothing left, but we could leave. If we leave now, we're out. And we're not getting back for a whole bundle of political real reasons. So if my view is correct, that in five or 10 years time, the EU, imperfect though it is, muddling along though it does, making mistakes like other governments from time to time, is nevertheless one of the biggest markets in the world, giving us access, giving us a lot of credibility internationally, we'll have made the right decision. Or oh, sorry, we will have made the wrong decision to leave and we'll be out of that and there'll be no way back. And that's why we need to be very careful with this decision. Just out of interest, do you have a view? Do you think we should be allowed a referendum? Um, my personal opinion is that I'm not sure it is the right decision. Okay. I believe Fine. that it's quite big and the government should make it, but yeah, that's my opinion. I had a vote. I'm old enough to have had a vote. I think you should all have a vote. Um, any other questions, comments? Yes, the next row back. And then, well, no, the questions can't all come from the front row. I want some of you at the back asking questions. Oh, my name's George Chartley. It's got a general question. Um, if we're going down the road of cold rational analysis, um, could a British representative renegotiate our position in Europe um, with a mandate to leave from the British people if our terms not met? If, what was that so last? Essentially, after the referendum, if there's a vote to leave, could a representative go to Brussels and basically put forward an ultimate and say we want these terms for you? What's the situation after the vote? Paul, do you want to? I can try. This, I think, was the Boris Johnson proposal that was squashed so uh, comprehensively by uh, David Cameron about three months ago. <clears throat> and it's, it's interesting to speculate on, on why Boris might have decided to float that. Um, in a sense, you can never say never because the way it works legally under Article 50 is if the referendum is in favour of, uh, of leaving, then there is the two-year period under Article 50 to negotiate the terms of exit. But it's up to the UK to decide when it triggers that period. It's just that once you've triggered it, you've got two years. So there is a period of time in which you could go back and say, OK, we've now got to vote, let's talk again. But you heard David Cameron's answer. No, we've done that route. The door will be, shown, will be closed to us. That is not a political reality. And actually, it's a cop-out, okay? It's a decision 
to avoid taking a decision. And so I, I don't think it's a realistic prospect in, in, in a political real world. But Chris may have a different idea. No, we agree totally on that one. If we vote to leave, we leave. Um, and the, the point I was making earlier is that the European Union is heading in a different direction. And I think David Cameron worked immensely hard to simply get the renegotiation that he did. Uh, I saw him uh, over a period of months putting a huge amount of effort into this, travelling around Europe, uh, and ended up with a package that I personally think is not nearly substantial enough to give us food for thought about staying in the European Union. But uh, I don't think there's some great extra route available to us. As I said, the EU is heading in a different direction and has to do that in order for the Eurozone to survive in the future. So, no, I think if we vote to leave, we leave.